Our scripture is taken from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, page number 659, if we're using a Bible from the back. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, again, we welcome you here uh, today. I'm Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. It's just great to uh, be together. Let me pray for us quickly as we launch this. Father, thank you so much for your love. And God, now I pray that you would help us to believe. Amen. We believe that God has spoken in the scriptures. That's what our statement of faith says, anyway. This summer, I began uh, once again reading through the entire Bible. Some of you have done this, I'm sure. Others of you have tried, didn't quite make it. Uh, it's hard, isn't it? It's, it's challenging reading through this book because it's long. It's challenging because there are parts that are just boring. It's challenging because our cultural context is so different from theirs. But perhaps most of all, it's challenging because there are parts, there are areas that are just hard to believe. Even recently, after you know, a few times after finishing my daily reading, I say to myself, really? Really, God? This? There was an article two weeks ago in the Kansas City Star on the joys of atheism. And the author makes a claim. It says, let me see what, it says, reading the Bible is the fast track to atheism. The fastest way to make an atheist is to read God's book cover to cover. That's what it says. Well, I, I mean, I, I don't agree with that statement. In fact, many would say that the, the very fastest way to make a believer is to do the same, to read God's book. But I do know what the author is trying to say. This book is hard. And to believe that these words are God's is even harder it's no doubt, it's no wonder that as we plan this, this series together, we ask you to, to submit your questions, your struggles, your doubts, that this one came up frequently. Of how can we trust that the Bible is God's word? And I'm with you. We, we talk about building our lives on these words, but how do we know they're right? If God hasn't spoken, or if his word to us is somehow flawed, then it's up to us to decide to figure out what life ought to look like, what, what's best for reality and, and for our world. It's our decision. 
But if God has spoken, and I realize some of you don't believe that, but just you know, give me the benefit of the doubt for a second. If God has spoken, the creator, the judge, then his words to us would be undeniably the most important words ever written. Now, before we get to this question, let me remind us of our expectations for this series as we talk about these seven different doubts. Remember, we're looking for confidence, not certainty. Okay? There's a big difference there. Confidence, not certainty. We can't, we can't prove that this is God's word just as the skeptic can't prove that it's not. We accept these things by faith. That's why it's called faith. Doubt is a normal part of faith, and so we're going to let our doubts push us rather than crush us. Okay, doubt ought to, to push us towards greater exploration, greater study of these things so we can grow more confidence. And we're going to do so with, with hope and with humility, with an open mind that this God can be trusted. Well, in order to do that this morning, we're going to ask three questions. What is the Bible? Can I trust it? And what does it actually look like? Or how do I actually trust this book in real life. And let me just warn you up front, this isn't really a normal sermon, okay? This, this is more like a seminary class, all right? And so you just, you've got to go into it with that expectation. We're going to be, you know, fairly technical. If we, if we just stay in the text, then all we're doing is, is circular, right? It's like saying, trust the Bible because the Bible says to trust the Bible, and so we also have to look outside of the text at history and, and literary criticism and all kinds of other fun stuff. Okay, are you with me? All right. Well, the first question, what is the Bible? Is it a fairy tale? A rule book? A textbook to, to answer all of our questions? Is it chicken soup for the soul just to encourage us and inspire us? Well, I hate to break it to you. It's none of those things, but at the same time, so much more. What does the Bible actually claim to be? And we've got to start there because we don't, as Christians, we don't, we don't want to make claims about the Bible that it is unwilling to make for itself, okay? So we have to begin, and what is the Bible? What does the Bible say about itself, there are several different passages that we could look at, but we're going to look at one of my favorites, Second uh, Peter chapter 1. And we heard it read just a moment ago. Um, but Peter here, Peter who's writing, he is, was one of Jesus' closest friends, one of the disciples, one of the, one of the apostles, right? And he wrote this letter about 30 years after the time of Jesus, and most likely, it's, it's just shortly before Peter's own execution. Here's how he describes this book, 2 Peter 1, 16. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And he go on, goes on and describes one of those stories that they were eyewitnesses of. And so right out of the gate, Peter makes the claim that they're, they're telling the truth, okay? And we, we can't prove that they're telling the truth, but you'd be hard-pressed also to prove that they're lying, 
or to even prove why a, a, a man on death row would lie about such things. We were eyewitnesses, Peter claims. We didn't just write down the rumors that we'd heard about Jesus. We wrote down the things that we, that we saw, that we heard, that we experienced ourselves. Verse 19, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word of the scriptures, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The prophetic word, Scripture, claims to be reliable, worth paying attention to, with both human and divine authorship. I mean, do you see that there? Peter says that the the prophets, those who actually wrote down these words, were human. And so they wrote these words with their human personality and their writing styles and their passions and interest for all to see. And yet at the same time, Peter says that they spoke from God, carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's the idea there of of inspiration, that God breathed out his words to us. From God, through human authors, written down for us. What is the Bible? Or what does the Bible claim to be? God's reliable word. Yeah, circular. Yes, I know. But we've got to begin where the Bible itself begins, the claims that it makes. And it regularly claims to be God's reliable word. But is it? Well, here we have the Bible. Many of you have one with you, or you own one, or you have access to one. It's not, it's not an unusual book in that sense, uh, but here it is, Old and New Testaments both. That's what the Bible is. It's, it's combined of these, these two volumes are brought together in one unified book. The Old Testament was written in the Hebrew language. This is, this is my copy here. Uh, it was written, I mean, the newest portions of the Old Testament are about 2,400 years old. And it goes back all the way for some portions of 3,500 years. I mean, ancient to say the least. And it took more than 1,000 years to write. The New Testament, it's brand new by comparison. Only 1,950 years ago was this book written. It was written in the Greek language, so there's just some, some differences there right off. Greek and Hebrew, very different languages. And it took about 50 years for this book to be written. Together, these two volumes brought together in our Bible tell one story. They tell a story of a God who created out of love, a God who was scorned by his creation, that's us, that we rebelled against him, went our own way, uh, but it also tells of a God who relentlessly, continuously pursues us, longs to, to draw humanity and all of creation back to himself. And this story, 
All 1,000 or so pages centers upon one person, the main character, the hero, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All of it pertains to him. And when we talk this morning, as we look at these, these different arguments or challenges that we, that we experience, uh, we're talking about the, the entire Bible, all of it, okay? And what you hold in your hands. But we're going to specifically focus in on the New Testament. Uh, primarily because the New Testament makes, and Jesus himself makes some remarkable claims about the Old Testament. I mean, it quotes it and treats it as if it is God's reliable word. And so if, if there's a, a reasonable case for believing that the New Testament is God's word, then the Old Testament just inevitably follows, okay? You can't believe the New Testament and the things that Paul and Jesus said without also believing the Old Testament because they talk about it all the time. Does that make sense? But we're going to focus historically more on the New Testament. Okay, so the Bible you hold in your hands, where did it come from? I mean, what is it really? I don't think any of us are, are naive enough to believe that, that, you know, God put it in an envelope and mailed it directly to us just like this. You picked it up and here we have it. Of course not. But where did it come from? Well, certainly the bookstore. Uh, and when you go to the bookstore, you have a, a variety of, of translations, right, of, of different versions. I use particularly up here the ESV, um, but what the process we're going to talk through is the same for any good modern translation. See so if you have NIV, NAS, um, these kinds of translations. It's the same sort of, sort of process. But this is the ESV. Okay, the ESV was translated by more than 100 uh, Greek and Hebrew scholars. Um, but what were they translating? I mean, we don't have the original manuscripts, of the New Testament. There are more than 5,000 manuscripts and fragments. So which one did they choose to translate? Well, all of them. The process before that is the, the textual critics. And I mean critic in a good way here. Um, so they've taken those 5,000 manuscripts, they've compared and contrasted them and put them together to form this, my Greek New Testament here to help us rest assured that what we have is as close as humanly possible to the originals. This is a compilation of all of the oldest and best manuscripts. Okay, and even, I mean, you can look here in the index and it'll even tell you specifically which manuscript, which fragment are they taking it from as this was, this was put together. So that's, that's what's translated. Well, where did all those handwritten texts come from? Well, for 1,500 years, before the invention of the printing press, copyist copied by hand. It was the only way to get the word out. The earliest copy that we have is from 125 AD. Here's a picture. And don't think I'm just like showing you part of it. That is it. That's all of it. That's, that's the earliest copy we have. It's only a handful of words, mostly just letters, um, but from John 18. It's not terribly impressive, except for the fact that historically, I mean, it was found in Egypt, which is, you know, a little bit of a distance from these kinds of things. Uh, it was written by John, light, likely in Turkey, okay, and this is a copy of whatever John wrote, but it was written in Turkey, about events that happened in Jerusalem. All of this, you know, 1900 years ago. So this is the oldest 
fragment we have. But there's also about 30 or so manuscripts from 175 to, to 225, and then there are complete copies of the New Testament from the three and four hundreds. And just to put it in perspective here, um, when you talk about writings of, of Plato or Homer, there are only a handful, in some cases five or six manuscripts written or copied centuries after those men actually lived. And with the, the New Testament, we have over 5,000, with several that are relatively close to the time of Jesus. But who decided what was in the New Testament? That's kind of the step before that there. Um, there's 27 books in your New Testament. Why not 26 or 28? Well, we'll talk about this a little bit more in a moment, but the early church fathers in the 300s recognized the divine writings, and by that time, most everyone was in agreement. These books belong, these others don't. Before that, we have the authors themselves, who were eyewitnesses of Jesus, and before that, the source, Jesus Christ, the main character of the story. Now, now some of you, when you hear that, you think, wow, what a process, all those people over all those centuries loving God's word and, and making sure that I could have a copy in my own language here with me today. Wow. And some of you, on the other hand, you're thinking, ugh, what a process. All of those people over all of those centuries, so much room for error. Well, both responses are entirely appropriate, both wow and ugh. Can we trust it? Well, there are three major challenges when it comes to trusting the Bible. Challenge number one, textually. Can I trust that the words we have are the words that were originally written? Because when we, when we talk about God's word or we, we talk about inspiration or the fact that these words are without error, what we're talking about are the originals, the autographs. You know, the, the piece of papyrus that, that Paul himself wrote on, those are the ones that we say theologically are without error, but we don't have any of those. And with the copies, there's more than a handful of errors in the copies. 5,000 New Testament manuscripts, no two of those are exactly alike. And hold on to your hats. There are about 400,000 variations. Now, if this is the first time you've heard that, whatever faith you had when you came in here, I just crushed it. <laughs> but let me try to build it back up again. Because of those 400,000 variations, almost all of them are exactly what you'd expect in 1,500 years of hand copying. And they're easy, easy to tell, easy to spot, easy to know what's missing and what happened. It's, it's a letter that's missing or a word that's missing or words that are out of order or one word left out or one word written twice. It's, it's those kinds of things. Almost all of them are exactly what you'd expect. Of the 400,000, only 400 make any, you know, real, real challenge in figuring out what the text was supposed to say. But of those 400, I mean, if you have a good modern translation, you have your Bibles open, look at the footnotes. Right there, it'll tell you exactly what the different possibilities are for that text. So you have it. You have it all. You know, you have, you know, what's written um, in, in the footnote at the very least. 
Now let me give an example of that. Um, our passage today was, again, Second Peter. Uh, there is a variation in verse 17. So if you've got your Bibles, you see a footnote there. And it says that uh, in verse 17, it could read, this is my beloved son. Or it could read, this is my son. Or just, this is the son. The oldest, best manuscripts have, this is my beloved son. And so that's what the ESV includes. But even if they'd chosen the other options, the text would still mean the same thing. I mean, nothing nothing would would change in in our understanding of what's going on and what Peter is writing based on those variations. Okay, does that make sense? And so of these 400 variants that there is, you know, people have to talk about and debate about and translators have to decide which which way they're going to go, of those 400, only two of them, two, affect more than a word, a phrase, or maybe one or two sentences at the most. Only two of them. I mean, most of them are exactly like the one we just looked at, where it's just a a simple little um, challenge to sort of work through. Well, the two that are more substantial, you can look at these later if you want, I guess, decide whether or not they belong in the Bible. That could be a fun project. There's only two passages that you can decide that on, okay? Because these are the only ones that are truly debated, okay? John 8, the story of the woman caught in adultery. Um, it's the, the manuscript evidence is very difficult to know. And the ending of Mark, the, the last, uh, I think, maybe 10, 12 verses of Mark. We don't know if those passages belong in our Bibles or not, not with, not with any real confidence. But those are the only two with any substantial challenge And of those, I mean, if you take away both those passages, or if you add both those passages, nothing is gained or lost theologically of any significance. I mean, it's not like you you add it and all of a sudden Jesus becomes God, right? Or you take it out and, you know, he's no longer God. It's not not stuff like that. It's, It's minor. It's insignificant. To put it in perspective here, the King James Version, it's 400 years old. Uh, it's 400th birthday is this year. It's from 1611. And so it has not, if you have a King James Bible, it has not benefited a bit from the last 400 years of manuscript discovery. And there's been thousands discovered in 400 years. Or any of the, the language development or a textual criticism, you know, history, any of this, archaeology, any of these things. And if you were to, to compare an ESV, again, that's what I have, or the KJV, Aside from a few of these and thous, and maybe a, a few tiny words or phrases throughout that are insignificant, inconsequential, there would be no change whatsoever. It's pretty amazing. 400 years and a renaissance of discovery has not changed this book. You can focus on the variations, but not one of those variations alters our beliefs. Or you can focus on the similarities. And really, the fact that there are 5,000 manuscripts hand-copied over 1,500 years, it's remarkable that they're as precise and exact as they actually are. Well, the other textual challenge here concerns the selection of these 27 books. Again, why not 26 or 28? Here's a book, for example, by Bart Ehrman. It's called Lost Scriptures. 
books that did not make it into the New Testament. So in here you've got, here's the Gospel of James, the Gospel of Thomas, uh, the Acts of Peter, the Acts of John, all of these. So why are some in here and some are in here? It's a pretty significant question. And this is where, you know, Dan Brown in particular, the Da Vinci Code, right, uh, sort of uh, took off on his, on his own way there and, and claimed that the, the books we have in the New Testament were chosen by the people in power in order to maintain power, which even Ehrman thinks is a ridiculous idea, and Ehrman is, yeah, definitely a liberal scholar. Um, so how did certain books make it in and others not so much? What was the process there? Well, there was certain criteria that the early church fathers looked for, um, the, the biggest of which was including books that were written by people who either knew Jesus personally or were d- directly connected with someone who knew Jesus personally, who had been eyewitnesses. And so books that had been written uh, within uh, a few decades of Jesus so that eyewitnesses were still around to say, no, that's not the way it happened or this is exactly what happened. And so that was, that was kind of the, the deal there. The Gospel of Thomas, that's kind of the most popular. Um, that's in this book, not this one, if you're thumbing through. Uh, maybe you had to read it in Western Civ. Uh, it's, a, it's a common sort of, sort of text in that setting. But the Gospel of Thomas, on the other hand, was even though it claims to be written by a friend of Jesus, uh, the earliest date possible for it is 175 AD, for its original writing. That's almost 150 years after Jesus lived, long after Thomas himself had died. The Gospel of Mark, on the other hand, which many would say is the first of the four Gospels we have in our New Testament, the first one that was written, was only written maybe two or three decades after the events actually took place. 20 or 30 years rather than 150. It's it's a substantial difference, right? And as far as the actual then decision... Uh, to include which books in the New Testament, that's, that's the process called canonization. The early church fathers in the 300s simply recognized which books were being universally accepted as those with authority. Certain books most everybody knew belonged, and certain books most everybody at that point knew didn't belong. Others, like Thomas, church fathers, I mean, that was around, it was available, they knew It doesn't belong. They simply recognize the authority it already possessed of these 27 books. Uh, Dana Harris, she describes it, tells us to sort of imagine if we as a nation were to take a poll. And we're, you know, the question is, what are the authoritative documents of the United States? Now, you might get a a few fringe suggestions here and there, but nearly everyone universally in this country would say the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. And our, our vote doesn't give those documents their authority. We're simply recognizing the universal authority that those documents have held for the last 200 plus years in our nation. That's that's what the early church fathers did. They didn't give them authority. They just recognize the authority that people universally, Christians, the church, were saying these are the ones that belong. Yes, there are textual challenges 
1,950 years is a long time and a whole lot can happen. But it is reasonable to believe that the words we have are the words the authors intended. But what about the second challenge? Historically, can I trust that the words we have tell the truth about history? Could they just be a collection of legends? Well, of course they could. But they don't read like legends, which was a common genre of that day. They read like history, like other historical works written during that time. And first of all, again, the the timing here, the timing of the writing themselves is just, it's too early for it to be a legend. I mean, if all of the gospel writers were written 30 to 60 years after the events actually happened, and the, the letters of Paul were 15 to 25 years after the events happened, it's too early. I mean, too many eyewitnesses. I mean, too many people who could come in and say, that didn't happen like that. You know, Lazarus, he didn't, he didn't raise from the dead. I mean, they could have gone back to the empty tomb. It's just, it's too early historically for these documents to be written that short after and for them to just be legends. People were still around to say if they were true or false. There's several examples of this, uh, but there's a, a great one in particular in the Gospel of Mark where it's clear he's appealing to the eyewitnesses who saw this event. It's uh, towards the end of the Gospel. He's, he tells us that the guy who carried Jesus' cross was the father of Alexander and Rufus. What do we care? Who, I mean, whose dad this guy was, right? It doesn't make any difference to us. These aren't like popular people that sort of come out often in Scripture. What Mark is simply doing is say, if you don't believe me, talk to these guys. It was, their, it was their dad. They know. And the gospel writers regularly do this, where they mention names of people that the only reason they could possibly be mentioned is because they want you to go ask that guy if you don't believe that they happened. Another uh, reason I think the idea of them being simple legends is, is uh, just hard, hard to prove is that the content of the Gospels is just way too counterproductive. I just wouldn't make, it's just, I mean, if I were to write a legend, right? If I were to try to create something to, to get people to, to follow or believe or, or like Dan Brown to, to be able to gain power, I don't think I would start with the hero dying the most degrading death ever invented. Or even, even the fact that, that Jesus, I mean, who would put Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, weeping with dis- despair, begging his father to find another way? That's not a hero. Or, or, or the disciples, the fact that all the disciples abandon or betray or deny Jesus. Why would you add that? The fact that God himself abandons Jesus while he hangs on the cross. It's just not, it's not legend material. And even the empty tomb, the very fact that the first eyewitnesses the, the gospels record are women. I mean, in that day, that culture, women were not even allowed to testify in court. If you were to make these details up, why would you, why would you do it like that? I mean, nobody, nobody would make this up. Come on, Nathan, isn't the Bible full of contradictions? Well, like what? 
I mean, people, people say that often, often enough, but, but what do you mean? What, is, what does a contradiction look like for you as you think about contradictions in the Bible? Because most of them could be explained fairly easily just by understanding the perspective of the various writers. Because especially in the Gospels, when you have four different writers describing the same events, they're just going to see things differently. It doesn't mean it's not true. They're just going to have a different perspective, a different purpose in writing. One example of a, of a contradiction is, and I mean, we could talk through plenty of these, um, is what did the disciples, or what did the soldiers bring Jesus to drink? Matthew says it was vinegar. Luke says it was wine. Well, which was it? You know, a contradiction. But this is over a, a span of several hours. I mean, couldn't they have possibly brought Jesus vinegar at one point and wine at another? Or maybe even wine vinegar? I mean, just, just understanding the perspective of the writers can change whether or not these are actual contradictions or they're just different ways of telling the same story. I mean, if, if you and I were to split up four of us and tell a story that we'd all experienced, I mean, the, if we're telling the truth, it's, it'd all be true, and yet we'd still tell very different details, emphasize very different things, because that's just part of human nature. It's how we're wired. I'm not saying there aren't real challenges here, okay? There are. But nothing weighty enough to make faith unreasonable. And if the Bible is historically reliable, I mean, let's just say, for the sake of argument, that Jesus actually rose from the dead. I mean, that, that is the central message of the story. I mean, that's really what we're getting at here. Did he, did he defeat death or didn't he? And if there's any plausible reason to believe that perhaps he did, that at the very least, taking the rest of these words into consideration is a really important thing. Textually, historically, there are good reasons to believe. But what about culturally? I feel like that's probably one that uh, we maybe wrestle with even more from times. You know, maybe the, these words are true, but, you know, true for them. What about today? Do they tell the truth about my world, about present reality, my life? I mean, isn't the Bible just culturally regressive? Slavery, multiple wives, sexual ethics, homosexuality? Well, first of all, I think we often misunderstand the, te- the Bible's actual teachings on these issues. And we project our culture's understanding of these things onto their culture's understanding. Before we claim that any part or any teaching of the Bible is regressive, make sure you know what the Bible actually teaches about those subjects in light of their cultural context. I think sometimes here we just, we just make hasty assumptions. And really, I mean, who are we to say that any of the teachings are regressive anyway? Because to say that the Bible is regressive is to also say that whatever you're basing your life on, you know you're basing your life on something. We all do that, right? Some story, some worldview. We all have a way of seeing the world. We all have an authority in our lives that we're basing our life on. So to say the Bible is regressive is really just a statement of saying, my authority is better than that authority. That might be true, but it's still something you take by faith. You can't prove it just as I can't prove otherwise. And to say the Bible is regressive 
It also assumes that, that we at this moment, we are at the pinnacle of human history by which everything past and future can be judged as right or wrong, as progressive or regressive. But what about our lives 500 years from now? Are people going to look back and think, ah, oh, that was so regressive? I mean, cultures change constantly. Who's to say that just because we think it's regressive or different or, or not fitting with, with our culture, who's to say what the cultures are going to feel like in, in the centuries to come? We're not at the pinnacle of human history. Why put your faith in this particular cultural setting rather than something that I believe transcends culture? And actually, I think there's great evidence that the, the story this book tells is profoundly relevant, that it's, it's written deep within our hearts because we all have a sense of oughtness, of right and wrong, of the way things ought to be. And we all also have a sense that this oughtness has unraveled, that life is broken, that I am broken and the world around me is broken. We, we feel it. And yet we continue to live with hope, hope that things can get better, Hope that my life is actually worth living. No other story gives a plausible explanation for these innate, universal feelings that we sense. The story makes sense of my reality, of why I long for a better life, why I grieve when tragedy strikes, why I feel love and am drawn towards beauty, why I feel guilt when I hurt others, and outrage when I see things like murder or child abuse. I love how my former professor explains it. He says, this isn't just the book we read. It's the book that reads me. It's the book that knows my heart better than I could describe it myself. That understands my culture, my world, my way of seeing things in ways that I couldn't even possibly explain. I can't prove it. But I believe these words are trustworthy. Textually, historically, and culturally. So how do I actually trust the Bible? Let me mention four things. It begins by choosing which authority is going to be your authority. As I, as I already said, we, we all have something that we appeal to as our authority. I mean, it could be a different worldview, a different philosophy, a different story, a different book, but we all have something that we're basing our life on. And if you reject the Bible, that's okay. Just realize that you're accepting something else. And have you questioned what, whatever it is you're, you've chosen as much as you've questioned this? Does your story come with as much plausibility as this one? Often we re reject the Bible or parts of it simply because we don't like what it says. You know, like, we'll take the love and forgiveness part, but the accountability, judgment, you know, not so much. But it, that makes you the authority. And if you are the authority, you will never be able to have a real relationship with God. Tim Keller writes, To stay away from Christianity because part of the Bible's teaching is offensive to you assumes that if there is a God, he wouldn't have any views that upset you. And he goes on, he describes, you know, let's say, let's say you don't like the Bible's teaching on sex. Does that mean Jesus didn't rise from the dead? I mean, they're, they're different questions, they're different arguments, different issues. 
And he goes on, he says, if Jesus is the Son of God, then we have to take his teaching seriously, including his confidence in the authority of the whole Bible. If he's not who he says he is, why should we care what the Bible says about anything else, or really anything at all? He goes on then, he describes how that if we reject the Bible or, you know, portions of it or whatever, what we really want is a Stepford God. Have you seen this movie, The Stepford Wives? It's about this, this community of, of people where all of the men have, have transformed their wives into robots who do and say everything their heart desires. But who of us would say that those men have anything like a real relationship? And Keller says, only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle, as in a real friendship or marriage, only then will you know that you've gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination. So an authoritative Bible is not the enemy of a personal relationship with God. It is the precondition for it. If you pick and choose what parts of the Bible you want to hold to, then you're, just, you're making a step for God. A God who will always agree with your self-interest and preconceived notions. Not a God who will die on the cross for our sins or who will invite us into a true and living relationship. Choose your authority. And what are your options? I mean, certainly we, there's, a, there's a whole lot of them. And, and at the end of the day, I think oftentimes, I think what I think I want is to be my own authority. You know, I want to be the one calling the shots, making the decisions. I know the best way to live my life, so help me. And I've said this before, though. Which you do you want calling the shots? Do you want the five-year-old version of you? The 16-year-old version, 25, I'm 31. Do I want that version of me? Because at every stage in my life, I've believed fully, wholeheartedly that I know exactly what it means to live my life. And I know the best way to do it. But I wouldn't have the five-year-old or the 16-year-old version of me running my life for any, I mean, they were idiots. And and what am I going to say 10 years from now, looking back at this stage of my life? At that point, am I really, I mean, do you really believe that you're going to look back and think, yeah, that's the person that should be calling the shots in my life. That's the authority I want. No. It changes constantly, continuously. Or maybe, maybe your authority is our, our culture, your friends, the people around you, your families, the, the media, some other book or worldview. You will choose an authority. Who's it going to be? Second, have faith in the God who is trustworthy. Yes, it takes faith. But if God is trustworthy, if God is powerful and good, and if God longs to reveal himself, all of which are central teachings of this book, if those things are true, then have faith that he can handle the process. And honestly, even though I, I mean, I can't prove anything here, I can't give you any evidence here, this one, for me, for my soul, is a big deal. Because I do struggle to believe these words. Time to time, you know, you read something, you're like, oh, really? But for some reason, I struggle much less to believe that God is good, that he's powerful and trustworthy, and that he longs to reveal himself. 
I, mean, I, just, I see that so clearly from the person of Jesus, that this is our God. And if, if I can believe those things by faith, it's really not that big of a step that he can do it, that he could speak, that he can do it clearly and accurately, and that he can pres- preserve it for us today. I trust this book fundamentally because I trust this God. Have faith in the God who is trustworthy. Third, trust it like you mean it. I mean, if this is God's word for us, and if God has actually written down these words for our life, for our flourishing, the God who created you, who loves you, who will hold you accountable, if that is true, probably read it from time to time. Maybe even regularly. Meditate on it. Memorize it. Put yourself in, in situations where you can be taught this book, like, it, like in church, or, or speak about it with your, with your kids, with your friends. I mean, parents, you know, we want our kids to grow up loving this book, following this Jesus. But we've got to show them that we do, that we love this book, that we are building our lives upon this that we actually believe that God has spoken to us in these pages. If you believe, live it. Live it out, obey it. The God who made you, who loves you, who will judge you, has also spoken to you. Trust it like you mean it. I'm speaking to myself there too. Finally, Let it drive you to the hero. Jesus Christ is the hero. He is the main character of this great story. He's the climax of God's word to us. Jesus is even referred to as the word of God himself, the word made flesh. He is God's message to humanity with skin on. This isn't a book of rules or a textbook or a collection of inspiring tales. It is a living book about a living person the word of God, Jesus himself, if we focus only on the difficulties, the parts we don't like, then of course we're going to struggle with doubt. But if we focus on the main character, it's not that those things go away. They're still there. Don't be naive. And yet we are compelled toward belief by an amazing person. God became a man, lived in our world, died a brutal death so that we could live, so that now our creator God is free to love us, to forgive us, to adopt us as daughters and sons. And if there is hope now, because of the resurrection, hope in life and hope in death, this book tells the beautiful story of a God who rescues. And just look at the lengths he would go to of even giving up his own life. And we see the name of his son, Jesus, whispered on every page. This is the message. Reading the Bible as the fast track to atheism, I don't buy it. Friends, read this book. Love this book. 
Not, not just because you need encouragement, not because you just want to figure out a, a little bit better way to live or another rule to follow, not because you, you think God will like you more if you do. Read it. Because the God of the universe longs to be in relationship with you. And here is his spoken word written for us to draw us to himself. And you will find in it the life you were created to live. And just see if this book doesn't begin to read you. Try it. Build your life upon it. And praise him for it. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Help us with our doubts. God, we thank you that there is good reason to believe that you have spoken. God, I pray that we would trust these words. And God, ultimately, I pray that we would find your son, Jesus, and that we could worship you together because of him. God, we trust you for these things. And we ask this for the glory of Christ. Amen.